Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of Self-Control Through Torah. I'm David Gottlieb, a historian of Judaism and director of Jewish studies at the Spertus Institute for Jewish Learning and Leadership in Chicago. And I'm Modia Silva, a psychotherapist and also an author based in Toronto, Canada. And today, if you listen to the last episode, we promised you a special episode this time. Um, every fourth episode, as we work through different character traits, we want to have a special guest. And so our first special guest, and with an emphasis on special, is Alan Marinus, who lives in Vancouver. And he is the founder of an online and in-person a blended learning institute called the Musar Institute that both David and I uh, have been part of for many, many years. Uh, Alan is also an author of many books on the topic of Musar, on the Jewish approach to character development. And um, and it's it's exciting to have you here. Well, thank you, Mudja and David. Nice to be here. I thought we would start today with a, a question that Moja and I have been thinking about ever since we launched uh, this podcast. And as you know, in our discussions with you about you joining us as a guest, when we planned this, um, there were two rotating dials that we used to determine the subject matter of any given week. One dial is the calendar of weekly Torah portions, and one is uh, the order of midot or character traits in Rabbi Menachem Mendel Leffen's Cheshbon HaNefesh, a guide to self-improvement and character refinement. And that led us to start with the trait of equanimity. Uh, this was all planned and then the events of October 7th happened and their horrific consequences uh, continue to unfold. And so I wanted to start by asking you under what circumstances is it even appropriate to study equanimity? And is it even appropriate to do so now in your view? It is appropriate to study equanimity. It may not be possible to have equanimity. And it also may be not necessarily the best uh, middle from which to respond to a particular situation. So let me give a little background to what I was just uh, trying to say. In the Musser view of, <coughs> of the inner life and the development of character traits, the object is to be able to, uh, to respond to a situation as Rabbi Israel Salanter, the founder of the Musser uh, movement in 19th century Lithuania put it, <coughs> excuse me, he said, you should be able to respond to a situation with a character trait and its opposite. We tend to respond through uh, habitual and consistent things. Something happens, it's the same sort of thing that happened last time. I get triggered in the same way that I did last time and I respond pretty much the same way because we become creatures of habits. His notion was we should be able to respond to a situation in the in one way and in the opposite way. We should be able to be angry and we should be able to be calm. The the emphasis on be able to, 
to have the um, developed inner capacity to be able to do one or the other. And it depends on the situation and the circumstances and the need and the goals to decide which of those inner tools is the appropriate one to respond with. And you can see, I think, even from that brief introduction, how liberating that is from the grip of habit and from the unconscious response or maybe reaction to situations when you have the capacity to respond with a trait and its opposite, which is how Rabbi Salanter referred to that, you have a kind of uh, expansion of free will because you have the ability to be to be the kind of person you choose to be in that particular situation in responding. I, I, so, I, I, I like, oh, if I can jump in. Please. So what I like about what you're saying is that it really comes down to choice. Well, actually, it comes, it comes down to a few things. You have to have the knowledge and the wisdom to be able to discern, and then you have to have the free will or the ability to choose. Correct. And in the present situation where we're looking at the, the, the battles going on in Israel and Gaza, I put my mind into the, or try and imagine myself in the mind of a field commander because, and I can't help but do it on the side of Israel because I can't imagine myself into the mind of a Hamas person from, from the get-go. I just, that's beyond my capacity. But if I imagine myself in the mind of an Israeli field commander, I can imagine all kinds of uh, emotions flowing through everything from maybe rage over the uh, what happened on October 7th with the incursion and the massacre, or maybe fear because, you know, I could imagine going into tunnels in Gaza and who would not feel fear in that situation? You know, the definition of, of courage is not fearlessness. It's the ability to, to act despite the fear and to do the right thing despite the fear. So I can imagine all kinds of sort of waves of different inner experiences coursing through my system. And yet I have a responsibility. And, I, and as a commander, I have responsibility for the people under my charge, not only for the mission, but for the individuals. And I think to myself, well, if I come, if I come at my decisions and my planning from fear, will that be the best basis for sending the soldiers into action? If I come from rage and outrage, is that likely going to be the best place to come from? And I think that it's kind of ironic and maybe even counterintuitive that a person under fire has such a high need for equanimity that it seems, as I said, counterintuitive. But otherwise, you're going to be making decisions and putting people's lives at risk and your own life at risk and the mission at risk because you're acting from forces that may very well cloud your best judgment. And I think that's one of the keys about equanimity, that it has a real connection to free will and clarity of thought. I'll stop there for the moment.
So, Alan, uh, what's really interesting about what you're saying to me at this moment, I, I have uh, an observation and a question. One is also before the events of October 7th, I had planned um, through wrote the Center for New Jewish Learning uh, in Skokie, Illinois, to teach a six session course on equanimity. Uh, we just had our second session and circumstances changed so much between when I planned the course and when the course started. And a lot of um, the concerns about managing equanimity right now come from how to manage the inputs of all the information that's coming uh, over the airwaves, online, everywhere one looks, if one's aware of these things, about what's going on in the Jewish world. So that's an observation that I hope you can talk about in a second. And then also, if I may quote you to yourself, this is in regard to what you just said. In everyday holiness, you say, uh, we are solely responsible for the powerful inner forces that can lead us astray. And so these are our first priority. The guidance we're being given here is to cultivate an inner attitude that creates some distance between the stimulus that comes at us, whether from within or outside, and our reactions to it. We make space by cultivating an inner capacity to bear witness. So with regard to both my students who are learning about and struggling with equanimity in these circumstances, and your observations about having to use equanimity against the powerful inner and negative forces that impinge upon us. I guess my question is, what advice would you give a beginning student uh, of Musar who's working on equanimity right now? Well, to refer to your first point about uh, taking in information from media sources, and you're asking about advice to a, a relatively new student, I would say you have to be judicious in deciding what you're going to look at and what you're not going to look at, what you're going to listen to and not listen to. I think like anything else, you can OD on information and not just information, but on images and on all the things which are very real. And I'm not talking about, you know, burying your head in your sand, in the sand, but the choice is about modulating the degree of inputs because, you know, when there was no war going on or anything like this, I would think about kids who were watching violent video games. How could that not shape their inner world? Well, now it's the same thing, except it's not a game, but there's still images and ideas and facts that keep coming out every day that I, I myself make a choice of what I will and will not look at or listen to because sometimes I think, do I need to do that? There's a kind of pornography of war and uh, images and so on, which are, they, they touch such a base place in ourselves, such a primal place, they sear into consciousness, and then that steers all the consciousness in that direction. And so what we're talking about, you mentioned the book Cheshbon and Nefesh, his kind of catchphrase for this quality of equanimity has to do with rising above events, both good and bad, yeah. which is a really interesting thing. I remember when I read that, I thought, wow, no, you want to like 
dance and sing and go 100% into the good stuff. You want to have equanimity about the negative stuff. And he's saying, no, you have to have it about both. Because, and this is what I think he's getting at and where sort of the crux of the matter is, strong inner, I don't even want to call them emotions because sometimes they're emotions, but they can be other things as well. Just these strong inner impulses can be like a tidal wave that courses through our inner experience. And like a wave, it can extinguish consciousness. You know, somebody who is so angry will do something from the anger and their consciousness is parked on the side of the road. They're not, that it is playing no role. Their sort of executive function is play, playing no role in guiding their response to some kind of stimulus. And whether it's anger or worry or fear or envy or the, there's just a whole category of things which can be experienced inwardly so strongly that it snuffs out the light of consciousness. And it is the emotional reactivity that is the entire player in that situation. So when you're being guided to rise above, because that is the same idea as I use the idea of witnessing, same idea. And it's a and it's not to get caught up in such excessive joyfulness either that you lose yourself in, you know, in behaving in ways that are if you were to see the video of you on the dance floor, you might have reconsidered how you would do that. So there's a story in the Talmud about the, the rabbis were at a wedding and they asked Rabbi uh, Hamnun Nazuta to sing a song at the wedding. And so he sang a song. His song went, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. And then so amazing in the Talmud, the rabbi said, so what's the chorus we're supposed to sing? That was their response to that. But he was seeing that there was too much, that they'd gone overboard in the direction of just kind of like enjoyment of the moment and just lost in the in the giddiness of of, uh, of what was happening. And he wanted to bring them back to a place where they, again, had a kind of alert consciousness to what was going on. And so, uh, you know, I think that when if I were, you know, if I were in the position you're describing, which is introducing uh, new students to a concept like equanimity, I would point out the negative consequences of not having equanimity, which is to say, look what happens when a person acts from rage. Look what happens when a person acts from ang pure anxiety. Look what happens, you know, take a look at the kind of person, not the kind of person, but the action that flows from that kind of way of being. And then you say, well, what's the alternative? And then I, again, point out, if you were the commander of troops at this moment, no matter what you were feeling personally, you would have to, in fulfilling your role, you would have to uh, aspire to rise above personal reactivity in order to have clarity of mind and therefore choice about what to do in the situation and what not. Yeah, I think now especially, but at any time, the image of 
a commander of troops is sort of the position we're in with respect to our midot, right? right. Absolutely. If we're if we're not being submerged by the waves that are flying through us, that's actually the, the goal in a certain way. You know, I sometimes use I have another image is like the the captain in the ship, you know, the captain is in a very small room at the top of everything. Right. But that's like the consciousness center. The ship has all kinds of functions going on and people being playing roles and so on. But the consciousness lives in that little room on top and beams itself out. And uh, I think actually uh, Rabbi Leffen in Cheshbon Nefesh uses an image of that, uh, of, of clear light and clear seeing. I think so, that's a very, a very good aspirational goal. That's great. So if we stay with that, but maybe also talk about this week's Torah portion, Vayera, because um, I think tying consciousness into this whole question of equanimity or any meter is really important. And we haven't actually defined what consciousness is yet, but it's certainly not thinking. It's not the stuff that goes up in, in, in the brain, right? Um, in the Parsha, what I found really interesting, because you're we're talking about being buffeted by the waves, or we're talking about personal reactivity to external inputs or external circumstances. Um, the Parsha talks a lot about laughter, Right? that we have this inner experience or we're told of this inner experience of Sarah, who in last week's Pasha also Abraham laughed as well. But somehow we won't get into this probably, but somehow Sarah's the one who gets this consequenced for it. But she has this internal laughter and then externally births laughter. She births Isaac, whose name Yitzchak comes from the word laughter to laugh. And so there does seem to be this correlation or this this um, interplay between internal and external that we see in this example of laughter in the Parsha. I don't think there's a question there, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> but it's just interesting what you were saying about it is really about personal reactivity, that that is the essence, I think, of equanimity. There's a lot of things in this Parsha where you you can wonder about the response or maybe even reaction of different people to circumstances that are taking place. Um, you know, everything from Hagar being sent away with Ishmael and and then Hagar, you know, kind of consigning Ishmael to die under a bush without, you know, just doing that. How do you do that? Is that is that equanimity perhaps taken to the extreme? That you could, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not um, analyzing that particular incident, but I'm saying that there's a lot of action and reaction, and you can look at where does free will come into play, and where does submission come into play. I think it's a very rich parsha for raising this uh, issue because you know one of the things that it brings into um, into focus is the distinction between the kind of psychological approach, which is really pretty much what we've been talking about up till now, and then the, what I would call more Jewish or Mossadic or spiritual approach, which brings God's will into the picture. Because yeah. I know that I did the idea of the ship and the ship's captain and I'm my consciousness and acting in my life, it's all very uh, bounded and atomistic. But you take your, you 
take the example of Abraham being sent to sacrifice his son, you know, if if it was just him on his own, you couldn't make any sense of that. That would be, you know, just a, a horrendous thought of pathology. But wait a minute, when you bring God into it and God's will and God's direction, it gets much more complicated. And the issue of equanimity gets more complicated too. Right. So I, yeah. So I want to, that was one of my thoughts around equanimity and this week's Pasha is that when we say, or when Rabbi Leffin says, rise above events that are inconsequential, that maybe he, he doesn't mean not being affected emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, physically, but maybe it means rise above enough that you can actually see that it, the oneness of the divine, the oneness of the world. And so it's not our ego-driven world that we live in, it's a God-driven world. I think it would be a matter of maintaining your ability to discern. I would think that was... What do you that, mean by that? Discern? What? Well, for example, to, dis to discern what your emotion is pushing you to do and what your your maybe your higher self or your or your deeper values would say is the way to go but at the same time it, one of the questions about the sacrifice of isaac is about discerning whether that really is the voice of god is that really the divine will is that really what god wants and you know you can feel Abraham being very willing to do God's will, and yet at the same time, there are hints that he is very reluctant to do what he's doing. And when you get into that situation where you're, you feel you're compelled to do something, but you have a lot of reluctance to it, equanimity comes into play very strongly, because how are you going to discern? In the end, you have to act, and the clearer your mind is, the clearer your action will be in accord with the values that you would want to act with. I, I'll give an example, and this was pointed out to me by Rabbi Peir, my Musser teacher, who points out that, and this was just in a conversation with him, and I'll quote him again in another sense. He points out that the verb that's used to describe Abraham taking the knife is not uh, to take, but it's yishlach, he sends his hand. He sent his hand. And I think that that's a really interesting observation that what the Hebrew says describes a kind of inner process of direction. And that's where I think I sense a kind of reluctance to do. He had to send his hand out by an act of willpower to do it because he was caught between a command, a divine command, and fatherly love. And in that situation, he discerned that what he needed to do was follow God's will, and and he was reluctant to do it. And and yet he had to have he had to take an action, and that required that he have discernment about what is the priority here. Love that you bring up discernment. Because um, in the Parsha, there are patterns of words, verbs, phrases used repeatedly. And one of them is a variation of Vaisa et Avraham et The raising of, like, literally looking up, but, but metaphysically, raising one's 
ability to discern, raising one's spiritual vision. This happens when uh, God says, go to a mountain, I'll show you. Abraham raises his eyes and sees the mountain far off. When Abraham uh, sees the ram caught in the thicket, only after he raises his eyes. And then he names the place uh, where this happens, uh, Adonai Yireh, right? God will see. And there's a connection between elevated spiritual vision and knowing what to do. But Alan, what you're saying does suggest in a way, and philosophers like Kierkegaard have tried, I think in vain, to deal with this question, that Abraham has literally been put in the closest thing to an impossible position that a person can imagine. And one can wonder, especially looking at the course of him through this parsha, the way that he goes through crisis after crisis, challenge after challenge, test after test, and never loses it, and doesn't lose it, although he does act in a kind of hesitant way, even when he's asked the most difficult thing a human being can be asked. Is there, are we seeing too much equanimity from him? Is there, how should we use Abraham in this parsha as a model, is I guess a better question. Yeah, I wouldn't, uh, and I, I'm glad you rephrased it because I wouldn't want to be put in the position of having to kind of evaluate Avraham. But I think what you're pointing out, what you did point out, which I think is a very good um, place to draw from in draw in, in taking lessons from the Parsha, is that he never loses it. And we know from our own experience that very seldom does a really positive outcome come because we lost it. But it feels so good. Yeah, it feels so good in the short term. I remember when we were in Israel on a Musser Institute uh, tour, and we were um, at the Beis HaMusser, which was founded by Rabbi Shlomo Wolbe 50 years ago. We were studying there, and somebody asked a question of Rabbi David Nussbaum, and the question was that she had just recently made Aliyah and she was lonely and it was hard for her. And her way of dealing with this that made her feel better was to go shopping. And she was asking the Musser teacher, was this okay or not okay? And he didn't jump into responding to the question directly. He asked her a question back. He said, after you do it, do you feel any regret? And I thought that was a really wonderful way of keeping her in touch with her own experience because it may feel really good in the moment, but if you've just screamed at somebody who you actually love or, you know, road rage or whatever you might've done, uh, generally there's a big after effect of regret because you kind of come back to that place of discernment. You return to that more whole inner person that you actually are, that you kind of pushed off to the side or the, or the wave of emotion pushed it off to the side. You come back and you regret having done that. So I think when we return to that central question about uh, what can we learn from Avraham, it's to not lose it, is to strive to, to look out for those situations in which we have a tendency to lose it. And, and 
Musar, I guess, differently from philosophy, is a path of practice and self-development. So if you're aware of the situations in which you tend to lose it, that's pointing out what's on your spiritual curriculum. That's what that means. When you look at those, and we all tend to have patterns in where that happens, uh, when you look at the pattern of where you do tend to lose it, it's like putting a big highlight on saying, this is on your curriculum. This is what you've been assigned to develop in your life. And it's not about just repeating the cycle. It's about freeing yourself from the cycle. Same trigger, same response. Same trigger, same response. Interject practice, same trigger, different response. To me, that's growth. And I, you know, to quote again, my Muslim teacher, Rabbi, Pair, he said to me once, I've quoted him many times, that what Musser practice does, it introduces a space between the match and the fuse. The recognition that life, as everyone goes through life, certain things are very provocative for them, for them as an individual. And one person in a situation is provoked, you put another person into the same situation, nothing provocative at all. You know, uh, I spent time in India where getting cut off by another car on the road is not an offense. It's not, a, it's not an offensive act. Nobody reacts to that. You know, if you say, how come you could cut that guy off? And the answer would be, well, he could, he had enough time to stop. It right, was, right, it was, right. There's a kind of, it's kind of like getting on a subway, right? You have yeah. to sort of budge in front of people. Right. And no one like yells at you unless you're being too offensive. But right. so, the point being that where you become aware of your own tendency to trigger is a hugely important lesson in your own life about where you could focus on developing another quality. And that quality could be equanimity. Not necessarily, but it could be. Yeah. I like that. Where you talk about um, putting in a pause, that also requires discernment. Because in this in this week's Parsha, um, Lot is in Saddam with his wife and his two daughters and his son-in-laws, and they pause. It says, Vayit Mahma, that they pause, and the angels, the two angels who came to visit them, grab them and pull them out and go, no, 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 we got to get out of Stum now, because it's it's going to disappear. So pause, if, just, just saying, oh, okay, so my practice is going to be, I'm going to pause every time, so I can make a decision isn't necessarily the right thing either is knowing when to pause having the discernment is important it's the difference between the practice and the implementation of the practice the practice is to always introduce a pause when you're practicing but when you're in a real life situation you won't have time that's the wrong time to be practicing it's the time to be acting you can see the payoff if you've become a person who it's like learning any other skill at the beginning when you're learning the skill it's very slow and takes a lot of time whether you're talking about uh wielding a tennis racket or or knitting needles you watch someone who's learning how to knit they're very slow and deliberate but over time it becomes like clack 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 they're just real fast and the same is true about introducing a pause or a space between the trigger and the response to the trigger in the practice, it may be slow and laborious, but in the moment, if you've practiced, you become quite quick at 
working within a small space. You know, people say about experiences, sometimes they feel like a car accident or something, time slowed down. And it's the same length of time chronologically, but experientially, it's a much longer time. So when you get good at recognizing the kinds of triggers you get uh, pulled under by, then there can be a kind of instantaneous refocusing in that moment, which only takes a second, less than a second, to be able to say, I'm not going that way. I'm not being pulled into that. Now you have to act immediately. Yeah, and I think, you know, what what, uh, made that point for me in this Parsha is exactly in the middle of the 22 verses of the story of the Akedah is the double call from the angelic figure to Abraham. Abraham, Abraham. Um, It's possible to have equanimity even when acting with alacrity. But there are times when even God loses God's equanimity. And and that is okay because in moments you have to act. Right. And equanimity may not be the the appropriate response to that situation. Right. You know, if, if I think about outrages that, that people perpetrate against other people, I don't want to feel equanimity about that. That's not, a, uh, that doesn't seem to me to be appropriate or spiritually elevated. To be able to be on an even keel in everything that goes on in life, that's not my ideal whatsoever. Now, to be dominated by reactivity is at the other extreme, right? Because in the Musser approach, you watch out for the two extremes. One is having, being kind of numb, like never, never ruffled, no matter how terrible or how anything you got, you're just always like, you know, Mr. Placid or Ms. Placid. At the other end is like, you know, you're like a popcorn, you know, pop, 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 pop. So neither of those is ideal. And the, you know, the ability to develop the trait and its opposite is that ability to experience your emotion, to really, really uh, engage in it. In other words, to, if you're feeling outraged, you're outraged. Or if you're feeling sad, you're really sad. You're, you're actually one with the experience, but it's not the controlling factor that determines what your action will be. There's a wiser consciousness that does not leave the stage. Such a crucial point um, because many times there is a confusion about what the nature and the meaning and the definition of equanimity is. Does it mean a constant imperturbability? That's not what it means. No, I remember hearing a, a Buddhist story about somebody who said, like he was, it was a warlord trying to overcome a, a holy man. And the warlord says at one point, don't you know I'm the kind of person who could run you through with a sword without batting an eye? And the holy man says back to him, don't you know I'm the kind of person who could be run through with a sword? without batting an eye. And that's just not the Jewish ideal. Neither of those should be the Jewish ideal. If you're going to run a sword through someone, you should feel something about that. 
you should have all kinds of emotional response. That's human. That's just human. And I don't think the ideal is to become non-human. By the same token, if you're facing like your own mortality, I don't see that as being something that should be uh, approached with, you know, the sense of just a complete flat affect. Well, detach detachment, right? Detachment. Yeah, complete detachment. That's a kind of living death to me. Yeah. Another uh, image, really, from the Parsha that I wanted to ask you about is Abraham in his debilitated state after having circumcised, him, circumcised himself at the age of 99, runs to greet um, visitors uh, who appear off the horizon, and he rushes to serve them. Ever since studying with you, the image that, there are many ways to look at this that can be helpful from a Musar perspective. For me, what it, what it models is we tend with emotions or uh, experiences that we consider to be negative, to that the best thing to do is to push them away. Now, Abraham doesn't know that these are angelic emissaries, and he welcomes them. And to me, this midah um, is crucial. Uh, this, this image is crucial because it suggests we should welcome all it. The first way to deal with an experience, yes, is to put a space between the match and the fuse, but we also have to in a sense, welcome the experience, even at its most negative. I think, as you both know, a little over two years ago now, I was violently attacked, badly beaten. And part of what helped my recovery was not shrinking and running from the experience, but moving into it and really living with its recurring sensations. To me, Abraham and Isaac, especially in later Parshiot, um, were models for this, for welcoming all comers. Doesn't Does this suggest to you a kind of, we, we have to not push against our experience in a way? Absolutely. And not think that we're not human. It's like those human experiences are part of the journey. They're really intrinsic to it. When I think about um, people who don't immerse themselves in the sadness and the mourning and the grief of having lost someone who was close to them, but rather stiff upper lip, go right back to work, get on with life. I think that is so psychologically and spiritually damaging because the more appropriate at the moment is grief. And if you look at the Jewish grieving rituals for a limited period of time, right? There are time limits. Seven days is the limit for the close relative of intense mourning, and then it, it dissipates from that. So to be able to turn to it and immerse in it and still keep conscious in it, but not turn away from it and not push away from it. And I think especially important, not set an ideal of not having human experiences. I want to introduce one other thing here because it's it's in my mind very strongly, which is teaching of Rabbi Shlomo Wolbe, the Musser teacher, died in 2005, but he was really drawing on older sources. He had a very strong idea that a human being can learn from every situation and that the attitude a person should have is teaching themselves from every situation. He used the word hitlamdut, to, to give self-instruction. And he said that this is an attitude of a person who really is invested in their own spiritual growth and ascension, which is to say, 
there's an experience happening now far from pushing it away and avoiding it it's my teacher this situation is going to teach me something what's it going to teach me i don't know but i better have the attitude of curiosity and openness and questioning because this situation is offering me a lesson and he said that when a person is on their deathbed and their last day that person should be learning how to die because that unique situation is holding out lessons that person hasn't had before so I think this is really a very Jewish approach and it touches on equanimity because it's to say that you're having the experience and simultaneously you are watching the experience and simultaneously you're trying to learn from the experience because you're still trying to grow. Life is about growing. So it's not just about being a cork floating on the waves and going this way and that way. It is a bit of that. There is a bit of that, but at the same time, simultaneously at another level is having that ability to watch, look, discern, and learn. Hmm. Alan, I want to I want to keep going with this because there are two words that have jumped out that David used experience and you used situation. And, and I just found myself pulling back a little bit because I, I get it, but I'm a I'm a psychodynamic relational psychotherapist whatever that means right but it's the relational piece <laughs> that uh, that always jumps out to me so in this part so we talk about experiences and situations and learning from that and it made me think as you were talking and as david was talking before about the character trait of no say to to bear the burden with another of your of your friend of your of your neighbor of the other and so we see, like we saw a couple of weeks ago in the Pasha with Noah, with the story of Noah and the flood, how the dove came back and couldn't find its way back in through the window. And Noah reaches out and takes the dove and pulls it back in. He helps, he steps out and helps. And then Abraham has the two guests who come, or the three guests, sorry, who come. Lot has the two guests who come into Storm. There's all these stories that we're seeing where the human connection, the demand for relationality is present and challenging us with our equanimity. I, I, I just want to make sure we don't lose the fact that Judaism and Musa and the Musa tradition is not just an isolated, I'm just all about me and improving me. Well, and, and if you want to tie that back to equanimity, if you wanted to have sort of perfect non-relational equanimity, what you would do is move out to a cave in the desert or set up a monastery where everybody had their own cell and nobody spoke to anybody else, etc., etc. which in fact are images of practice in other traditions, which we don't have in Judaism because we don't see an opportunity for spiritual advancement in a non-relational way, because if you know, and just consistent with what we've been saying here, if a lot of your own personal growth has to do with paying attention to the things that trigger you, nothing triggers people more than other people. It's, it's yeah. because the three of us are married. <laughs> Correct, but I'm not going there. Our friend here saying hell is other people. We 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 shouldn't say that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. 
that none of us should quote Sartre, who says hell is other people? Well, I think that triggers are other people also. I mean, it's not just hell. You could say it's heaven and hell. But, uh, you know, I remember somebody saying once, no, no wonder my mother pushes my buttons. She installed them. <laughs> and nobody is, nobody brings out your own personal spiritual curriculum more than the people that you're close to. Right. They just, you know, I sit on airplanes next to the nicest people in the world. Everybody is so nice on an airplane sitting next to me, but I'm not in real relationship with them. Relationships are, from a certain perspective, the the real crucible of spiritual growth, and that's why Judea, that's how Judaism sees it, which is why we don't have a monastic tradition and no valuing on a monastic tradition. There's several quotes I give them in, in my book, Everyday Holiness, from like Adin Steinsaltz and Rabbi Salantra, but a person who finds perfect equilibrium. I can't remember which one it was. I think maybe it was Rabbi Steinsaltz who says, we consider a person like that someone who's lost their way. You know, someone who's just in a constant state of flatlining is, is someone who is not engaged in the journey and the process and the and the learning and the growth and there's no way from a jewish point of view you can do that except to interact with other people there's a scene in the monty python movie life of brian where brian is being declared the messiah but he's trying to escape the crowd so he goes running into the desert and he comes to a there's a pit in the ground where a hermit has been living in the pit and then Brian jumps into the pit and lands on the hermit's foot. Now, this hermit has been maintaining a vow of silence for 25 years until Brian lands on his foot, and then he starts cursing him out. And then he goes, oh, my vow of silence, my vow of silence. The first person he meets after 25 years, this practice of isolating yourself from other people turned out not to be very effective for developing the ability to deal with people. And the only way to develop the ability to deal with people, the biggest triggers that we have, is by being in contact and in relationship with people and maintaining the kinds of awareness and consciousness and free will choice and living up to higher aspirations that we've been talking about today. That's fantastic. Um, I feel very full. David, I'm not sure. Where, where are you right now? Always right where I am. And... Uh... I, and without, I hope, engaging in flattery, I have to say that uh, 45 minutes with Alan um, is an entire semester and, a, and a, a great and it surfaces great feelings of fondness and friendship as well. Really grateful to see and speak with you again and to get this important practical wisdom at a time of great difficulty. I think uh, even though and maybe especially because equanimity at this time in October, now November of 2023, is so hard to come by. These are really precious nuggets that have been mined out of this conversation. And I'm really grateful to you and to you, Moja, for engaging yeah. in this. Thank and you. I'm, and I'm grateful to both of you for the opportunity and for sharpening my thoughts on this area in the context, in a very difficult context that we're living through and bringing these uh, ideas that have come to us from previous centuries when other people were living through very difficult situations as well. 
we in the in this contemporary world have been in many ways so isolated from what was very common in previous eras and we're kind of having a wake-up call to what it was like to live in the world of pogroms or the holocaust or the crusades or the sacking of jerusalem or and on and on history was quite different from what it has been for people in the sort of western world in the post-world war ii period yeah thank you alan um maybe just to finish up administratively so this was this was our fourth episode we can we conclude our uh, initial study of equanimity and our next episode moves to the next character trait that rabbi leffin presents which is patience and we will again interweave that with the torah portion for next week and we thank you all for coming please subscribe if you haven't already and we look forward to continuing this journey together. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, David. Thank you both.